that's a little better. So yeah, um, Tom shook me up a little bit this morning. Um, he came up and said, hey, so did you get your hair permed? And I, I've never had a body wave or a perm in my life, but so uh, I guess I've been doing something right with my shampoo regime. So anyway, I've never actually preached with a microphone. I don't know how I'm going to do here because I usually hold the Bible. I'm going to struggle. Can we kind of see if the mic will work? Is that better? Is it working? Okay, so... Um, so hopefully by the time we're done with the announcement. So apologies to the search committee. Last week I was supposed to give this announcement. And I got so excited about preaching the word that I completely forgot. So I literally put two ribbons in my Bible to remind me to make this announcement. Now now that I've said that, you're going to be really disappointed because we, we don't have any candidates yet. Um, I, I was going to say next week we're going to bring them in, but that would be very disappointing for some of us. So... Um, yeah, so we, we've been working hard. Uh, there's a lot more work that goes into putting out stuff on, a, on a, you know, the job boards, if you want to call it that. But we have posted the position on the EFCA uh, position board. So that is our first step. So we've been working hard to get to that point, and we've gotten there. So um, just continue to pray for us as we seek the Lord's will for our next lead pastor. So, yeah, so there's that announcement. Uh, let's let's uh, t- take a second. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your grace and kindness in reaching down and saving us through your son, Jesus Christ. As we look more uh, towards your salvation and the motivation that gives us to worship, Pray that you will open our minds, open our hearts, soften us, and draw us to yourself. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Any better? Keep going? Nope. All right. It looks like we're going to have to keep with this. So that's going to make it a little awkward. So if I, sorry, if it um, makes me a little bit, not jumpy, but little stuttery or something. Anyway, um, all right, so last week uh, we spoke to you and we put up a chart. We, we spoke about um, this 3 through 14 in Ephesians chapter 1, and this section is a very, very organized, powerful statement on why we should worship. And we noticed that in each of the sections there is a call to praise. I'm not going to be able to roam either. Um, that's okay. That's probably good for me. So it starts off with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, which is a call to praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it ends that section with this, to the praise of his glorious grace. So everything in that section was to result in God receiving worship and praise. Then the next section that we're going to look at today also ends with, so that we, the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. And we pointed out there that it's, notice it's not that we will praise him, it's that we will be to his praise. So in other words, we're living a life of worship. We're to live a life of worship. We'll talk about that more in a second here. And that section, the call to praise, finishes. And then there's a new section that deals with the Holy Spirit, and that ends with another call to praise. 
So this whole section telling us each of the members of the Trinity's role in salvation is to cause us to return glory to God in praise, not just on Sunday morning worship, but worship with our lives. Our lives are to be lived in worship. And then the second part of that, we see that on the far right there, the role in salvation. The Father chooses, plans, and adopts. The Son redeems and heads the church. And the Spirit seals and guarantees. And last week, if you remember our main application, although we had a number of applications, our main applications was identity. God choosing you and making you his son, adopting you as a son, gives you an identity. This week we're going to find and fill that in again, but we'll wait till the end of the message to fill that in. So let's go ahead and read uh, together, if you would, with me, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. We're going to read the whole section together again. Excuse me, one second while I get organized. this mic would mess me up. Here we go. I'm just going to set these down here. My apologies. All right, read with me. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." This is the word of the Lord. So last week we looked at verses three through six and we found out the role of the father. Now today, I can drop the mic. God bless you guys. I'll be honest, that was the most awkward thing I've ever done in my life. So thanks for patience with me. So last week, let me get caught up to where I am now. Okay, so last week we looked at the role of the Father in salvation. And that was motivating for us to worship. This week we're going to get two more reasons looking at the role of the Son in salvation as to why we should worship. But before we do that, before we do that, what I'd like to do 
is talk a little bit more about what it means to live a life of worship. What it lives to live a life of worship. Last week we said that living a life of worship was lining up our whole lives to God's priorities. It's not just coming on a Sunday morning. It includes that and singing great worship. By the way, don't you just love that song in Christ Alone? Isn't that where it's at? If you just knew that song, you know the gospel. Anyway, sorry, that couldn't resist. I love that. Thanks, worship team, for leading us through that. But we're gonna, what we're going to see is that the life of worship is more than that. It's more than just singing. It's lining up our lives and making God's priorities our priorities. It's saying, look, culture around us, we love you, but we're not going to follow you. We're going to swim against the stream if we need to because God's priorities are different than our, our culture's priorities. And that's true of every age and every culture. Every culture that's outside of God has very different priorities. And what we need to do to live a life of worship is to line those priorities up. Let me give you two, two examples. If you were to live a life of worship, how will that affect you at work? Well, one, it'll affect our ethics, right? And some of you have had to do this, haven't you? Some of you have had to say no to people who ask you to violate the law or violate ethics. So in one sense, our living lives of worship may cost us something. But that's going to honor God and that's going to be an act of worship. Also, who's going to be the hardest working person in the office if you live a life of worship? Now look, you may not be the best employee because you may not have the capacity some of the other employees have. Right? But at the very least, if you're a worshiper, everybody's going to know that there's something different about you because he or she works harder than anybody else I know. And in so doing, you're representing Christ. In so doing, you're representing Christ. We should be the type of employees that so amaze our bosses that they want to know what's different about us. That's a life of worship. All right, here's really where it meets the road for me. How about when you're on the road? Don't say this, Dave, because you're preaching against yourself here. Right? Why did you cut me off? You're an evil person. Or maybe they're just like you and they made a mistake and forgot to look in their rearview mirror or they turned their head over the shoulder. All right, here's a really interesting one. When you come out of the church to drive, do you cut people off for your convenience? Or, right, I just think about this. I thought about this the other day as I'm driving. I had a chance to either go and cut somebody off or wait. You know, in that five seconds, I didn't want to give up. But I thought, you know what? I'm coming out of the church. I'm representing Jesus here. I'd better let, right? So living a life of worship, lining up our priorities and saying my life and my personal five seconds of driving convenience are worth giving up so that I can live a life that extols God's virtues. That's a life of worship. That's a life of worship. So everything that we heard last week about God choosing and adopting you and placing you as an adopted son 
All of that motivates this life of worship. And we're going to get two more reasons for a life of worship today from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9 now. In 7 through 9, we're going to learn the first one. The Son, the Son redeemed us. We worship God because the Son redeemed us. Let's look what he says here, starting in verse 7. Actually, let me start in six for context. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graced upon us or lavished upon us in the beloved. Now, we're going to talk about what this word means a little bit later. But in the beloved, that's referring to Jesus. That's a messianic term. Most of us don't think of it this way, but it's a messianic term. We'll look at that later. But he says this, starting in seven, in whom, referring to Jesus the beloved, in whom we have the redemption through his blood, that is to say, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he abounded towards us in all wisdom and understanding. So in Christ, we have redemption. In Christ, we have redemption. Now, there's so much that we could say in here that it's going to be hard for me to keep this organized. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to organize it in terms of several questions and answers. So let me ask the first question. What does redemption mean? What does it mean to redeem? Okay, so I come from a coaching world. And in particular, in sports, we use the term redeemed all wrong. Because here's what happens. And I'm I'm not a football coach, but I play one on TV. No, um, I I love football, so this is the illustration I'll use. A player in the first quarter fumbles the ball. And then in the second half, scores two touchdowns. How do the commentators speak about this? Well, he really redeemed himself, right? So in the modern context, we often think about the term redemption as us working something to get ourselves back into good favor. That is not the biblical term. The biblical term redemption is actually the opposite of that. It's the opposite because it's when we can do nothing, someone else comes in and redeems us. This is a term that comes from the ancient Near East and Mediterranean world that refers to purchasing back either a captive or a slave. So here's what would happen. We live in a really good world. We don't, every spring, we don't have to worry about Bay City coming over and raiding Midland. Right? Or us getting together and going, we're going to go down and you know, raid Saginaw and take their wealth. But that was kind of the way it was in the ancient Near East. Right? And so what would happen is, you, you would, if you were to capture a town, you would capture all the people that were worth capturing, you'd kill all the ones that weren't worth keeping, and you would tow the rest back with you, and you'd either sell them as other people to, as slaves, or you would keep them for yourself as a slave. Pretty ugly world, right? Now, here's the amazing thing, though, because people are really into money, and so they were pretty smart. So if, if this had happened between, say, Midland and Bay City, somebody from Midland would have said, wait, wait till everything dies down, and then you go, hey, I've got a bit of money. Can I have my son back, please? And they would literally buy them back. Now, this happened in the Middle Ages with the aristocrats, right? They'd get captured, and then they would hold them for ransom or hostage, So redemption then is not us working our way back to God. It's God paying for us 
and pulling us out of the slave market of sin and bringing them back to himself. So that's what redemption is. Redemption is God purchasing us. Redemption is God purchasing us and bringing us back into a state of freedom. Notice what he says in Romans chapter six, verses five through six. He says this, for if we have been united with him, that is Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So what happens is when you turn your life over to Jesus Christ and give it to him and ask for his salvation, he redeems you, he purchases you out of that slave market of sin, places you in Christ like we talked about last week. And when we're in Christ, we have resurrected with Christ and we're no longer slaves of sin. There's freedom. You know, thinking back to the identity piece, I didn't talk about this last week, we could have. But a lot of us define ourselves by our sins. Deep down, we're like, I know, but I just, I struggle with this. Right? What does this text say? Are we defined by our sins? We're not. We're defined by our position in Christ. We have been purchased. If you're here and you're a believer, you were purchased out of the slave market of sin and you're no longer enslaved to the lusts of the flesh. Now, they still exist and we still struggle, but we're free from them. And our identity should never be about the sins that we struggle with. Because that tears you down. That brings you down. So answer, what is redemption? It's God purchasing his sons and daughters out of slavery to sin. Isn't that an amazing truth? However, are there any sins that you wallow in? God calls us to holiness. Remember what he said? He chose us so that we might be holy and blameless before him in love. Holiness and blamelessness. So God calls us to grow and calls us to find our identity in that growth. So redemption, question one, what does redeem mean? It's God purchasing his sons and daughters out of, the, out of slavery to sin. So what's the price of redemption? Because he said, look, you, you would go and you would find where your son or daughter or friend or whatever was captive and you would pay a penalty. Or excuse me, you would pay a price, usually monetary. Maybe you'd bring a bunch of cattle behind you because you didn't have cash and they would trade it for your, you would redeem your captive. What's the price of redemption? Well, look what he says. Verse seven, in whom we have the redemption through his blood. And that's a really strange phrase. Well, that's, it's not that Jesus could just bleed and that would pay the price. It was a bloody sacrificial death. That's how the original readers would have understood this. So Jesus himself was our penalty. He was the price that God paid. 
Another way we talk about this is in terms of substitutionary atonement. Christ substituted himself for us so that we could become children of God. Look what he says in verse, uh, Titus chapter 2, verses three, 13 through 14. should be up on the screen for us here. He says this, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He gave himself for us to redeem us. So Jesus was that price. Jesus was that price. One more passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, excuse me, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now these are two, there are passages all over the New Testament that speak about this. But it's Jesus who's our price. I know of nothing more motivating to worship than to know that God gave his only son to redeem me. That's why we worship. If you're here and you know Jesus, It's not that you worship God in order to be in good favor with him. Because he has granted us favor with him, we turn around and we live lives of worship. And that's why it's okay and worthwhile for me to say when I'm out the street there, it's okay for me to lose five seconds to not cut off somebody because I represent Jesus in this world. And I want to bring other people to worship with me. So Jesus was the price of our redemption. Now, I do, I do want to point out something, though, because this is a really rich, rich statement. When he says that we have the redemption through his blood, this also says that Jesus, through his sacrificial death, is fulfilling all of the Old Testament pictures that come before. So when John the Baptist when Jesus came to be baptized by him, pointed at Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What did that mean? Could you understand that if you didn't understand the Old Testament? Could you understand that if you didn't understand the story of the Exodus? There are so many things from the Old Testament that inform our understanding of the new and it's all wrapped up in this term paid for through his blood. The Old Testament sacrificial system is the picture that God established to remind us about how sinful sin was and then to remind us how great the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. If you think about all the sacrifices that would have happened in Jerusalem, if you've ever been around a slaughterhouse, the smell of blood, and nowadays we clean it up really well, but literally on sacrificial times, blood would be flowing through Jerusalem, and you would smell the smell of carnage, and that's because sin is so bad that God had to sacrifice his own perfect son to pay the price for that. 
I think there's a, my favorite, to be honest, I, I have like five favorite passages and I bounce back and forth. I, I, I want to look at, it's usually number one and bounces down to three sometimes, but Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. So what Jesus did, what Jesus did is when he was sacrificed on the cross, he fulfilled all of the Old Testament pictures about death and sacrifice and, sacri- and, and propitiation through his blood. And he gives us this picture and he fulfills that in what he does on the cross. So he have this statement in Hebrews. Again, this is just so rich. So he's talking about Jesus' sacrifice here. And he says this in verse 10. And by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So here's the contrast. In the Old Testament, there was no chairs in the temple. Okay? In the Old Testament, there's no chairs in the temple. Because the sacrifice that Jesus made was unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, and it's a one-time sacrifice. How often did they sacrifice? Year after year after year after year after year. Sin was so bad that they would sacrifice for those sins, and that would cover it up for a year. And then they would do it again, and they would do it again. And so that's why the text says, I'm sorry, you can bring that back up again for me. That's why our text says that he, the priest, stand daily. They're so busy, they didn't have time to sit down. Notice I have it up there in verse 11, bolded. Every priest stands daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. And here's the beautiful contrast. But when Christ came, he offered for all time a single sacrifice. And then what did he do? He sat down. Isn't that kind of cool? So he said, hey, the priests were standing all the time, over and over again, and Jesus sat down. Now that sitting down isn't just sitting down and resting. That's sitting down at the right hand of the Father as a king. So Jesus combines priest and king. Remember, he's the prophet, priest, and king. But here we have Jesus then fulfilling all of those Old Testament pictures. And for one sacrifice... He pays for all of our sin and gives us an opportunity to be his children. Now, two really important applications. Pastor Gibb is going to be leading us in communion here after our service. We have a one-time sacrifice. There are some Christian traditions that would try to to tell us that communion is a re-sacrificing of Jesus. That somehow this act is in and of itself salvation giving. There's no salvation in the cup and the bread. Why? We have a one-time sacrifice in Jesus. Do we need to re-sacrifice him every week? No, absolutely not. So what is it? It's a memorial. And before you 
make light of a memorial. Remember, think about a memorial service. Think about what you do at a memorial service. Communion is spiritually nourishing to us because we come together as believers, we take communion, and we express the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and remind ourselves of just exactly what that meant and what that means. And this is an extremely important spiritually nourishing time, but that's why we don't call it a sacrament. We call it an ordinance. Because this is not grace giving, but it's a memorial that is spiritually nourishing and good for us to go through. But because of the one-time sacrifice of Jesus, we don't have to repeatedly sacrifice him over and over and over and over and over again. Second application. Why wouldn't we worship? If you're here today and you are not a worshiper, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, join us. Come on in. Be a part of the family. Become a worshiper. Get the identity that he gives us. Get the identity that he gives us. At the end of the service, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to talk with you. We have people here. You don't have to stay up front. We can grab you. We can go somewhere else and we can talk. But we would covet the opportunity to lead you to Christ and help make you a worshiper because that's what we wanna be here as a body. We wanna be a body of worshipers. Wow, is that, I mean, we could just stop it there, right? I I got time left, so don't worry, I'm not gonna do that. Um, So that's one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons he says that we can, we should worship God. The second one is because Christ leads his church. Christ leads his church. Now, we'll read down through there and you're gonna go, but Dave, the church is not mentioned there. I'll talk about that, okay? So, verse nine. Having made known to us the mystery of, the, of his will, excuse me, according to his kind intention, which he laid out beforehand in him, to the plan for the fullness of times, that is to say, the summing up of all things in Christ, the things upon in the heavens and the things in, on the earth in him. So he uses the term mystery here. Well, let me take a step back for a second. So what's gonna happen in the book of Ephesians is Paul is going to just, he kind of starts with a little rock and he drops it on the top of a, a snowy mountain and he keeps adding to it. So imagine this, rock rolling and rolling and rolling and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and turns into this massive snowball that just blows through the trees and knocks everything over in its path. That's kind of what happens with the, with the teaching on the church in the book of Ephesians. So this is his verse volley. But he doesn't just drop a pebble, he drops a boulder. Because he says this, that in Christ all of time came to a head. In Christ Everything is summed up in him. Everything? Yeah, everything. Two reasons I can say that. One, the term, tapanta, which is what you see, the all things, that is the word that philosophers use for the universe. 
You didn't have a word for the universe in ancient Near East, in the Mediterranean world. You had the all. When you would talk about the universe, you talk about the all. So that's what Paul says. He summed up the all. When he, and, okay, so, well, maybe, okay, maybe, but maybe not. Okay, well, what does he say right after that? It says, sums up the all in Christ. Now, let's define this more closely. The things in the heavens and the things on the earth. Is there anything outside of that? Things in the heavens, things in the earth, the all. So the church is the summing up of all things in the Christ. Anybody ever here ever wish they'd gotten in on something like Apple when it first started? This is Midland. We, you guys know investments. What are some things that would have been good to get on at the ground floor? Apple, Amazon, okay, you guys are up on it. Bitcoin, split the room in half with that one. Amazon, Bitcoin, Google, Facebook. So we, we sit and we think, oh, if I just would have. Guess what? We have something better than that in the church. We get to get in on the ground floor of the summing up of all things in the Messiah. Way better than Apple. Way better than Google. Way better than Amazon. We get to, literally, this is the, the focal point of all history was bringing together the church in Christ because that's how he's redeeming the whole universe and he's gonna take us back to what it was like before sin entered in the world and the curse entered in the world. This is our opportunity to be a part of the greatest thing ever invented. And yet there's times when I'm like, oh, do I have to go to church today? That tells me that my heart's not in the right place and my mind is not in the right place because I have the wrong perspective when I say that. Why? Because I'm thinking about all these things on the earth thinking, oh, this is so great. I could sleep in. Oh, great. This is, I could go off and kayak. Guess what? I have literally the focal point of all history that I can be a part of and yet I waste my time doing things. Imagine that. Just imagine if we really all believed, and I'm including myself here, imagine if we really all believed that the church is the summing of, of all things in the Messiah. Now, I'm, I'm cutting out a whole bunch of stuff that I wish I could have included. Um, just to mention a couple things to chase down on your own, there's some really interesting kingly language here using to, to, the passage uses about Jesus. It calls him Messiah. It calls him a beloved son. If you think beloved son is referring to uh, a little baby boy or a young boy, the term son, read, read Psalm 2. That's a messianic term for a king. So when Jesus calls him his beloved son at the baptism, he's not saying, oh, I like this little boy. It's he is my son, Psalm 2, Old Testament Messiah. So not only is Jesus leading the church, he's the king of the church. And in worship, we bow our knee to Jesus and say, your priorities are my priorities. In Jesus, we have the king of the universe, and so we worship and we serve. This is heavy stuff, right? This is good stuff. I wish I had a few more minutes to do it, I won't. 
take your time, but. All right, so let's bring this home. Let's bring this home. Um, young men and women. Oh, can we bring that chart up? Yeah, that'd be great. Bring that chart up for me. Let's review that. Last week, we talked about identity, right? This passage, if you think about it, gives us what? It gives us purpose. It gives us purpose. What greater purpose could we have in this world than serving King Jesus in the sum of all things in the Christ, the church? What more could we do than do that? So we have, the next slide has purpose. There you go, thank you. Purpose. So last Thursday uh, was my anniversary. Celebrated my anniversary with Joanna, 32 years. Thanks, babe, you're the best. Okay, but we went to Ludington, right? And in Ludington, you've got that nice pier that runs out to the lighthouse. And so took a walk out there. Now, if you, if you remember, some of you probably know, most of you probably know, but there's a kind of a top level that's kind of wide, and you walk out on that top level. But then there's kind of a slanted side that drops down to what looks like two sidewalks on either side of the, of the walkway. And it wasn't a particularly windy day, but as we're as walking out there, I'm, I'm seeing on the windy side just these waves, right? And again, it's not very windy, but these waves are making it so you would never want to walk down on this side. But on the inside of that pier, or the inside of that breakwater, there's literally children with their parents holding hands, little kids, no fear, dry as, dry as anything. Why? Because they were protected. They were protected. When we find our identity in Christ, and when we find our purpose in Christ, it's a great protection from the storms of life. It's a great protection from the storms of life. We live in a chaotic world right now, right? The world is always chaotic, but this feels really chaotic to most of us. If you will find your purpose and identity in Christ, you will find peace in the stormy times. When you find your purpose and identity in Christ, you will find peace no matter how crazy your life is. No no matter how crazy the economy is. No matter how crazy the world stage is. No matter how crazy politics is. No matter how crazy, you name it, you can have peace. Because when you worship, when you turn your life over to Jesus and you worship, he gives you identity and he gives you purpose. Young people, there's nothing greater than we can offer you than the purpose that you can find in Jesus Christ. Today, what are you hearing in the culture? Find your own purpose. Find your own identity. Guess what? We have literally a miserable youth in our culture. Suicides are up. Meaninglessness is up. We need to offer them purpose and identity in Jesus Christ. And we can thank Literally thank God that our youth pastor, Pastor Chuck, leads them in this direction. So some of those in the youth category may be struggling with that, struggling with your identity, struggling with your purpose. Find your purpose in Jesus Christ. For those of us who are a little older, 
those of us maybe who are single in that 20 to 30 range, you're kind of finding your way in the world, you're trying to figure out what your career goals are, find your identity and purpose in Jesus Christ and don't leave out the church and don't leave out the church because this is the greatest thing that you can invest your life in. Young marrieds and young families, it's easy, it's easy for us. And I remember, it's easy for us to go, oh, I'm so busy right now, it's so crazy, I'm just gonna take the morning off, I'm not gonna serve, I'm gonna take this time and I'm just gonna put my energies into my family. You and your family not only are needed in this church, but you need a church. Because this is where you're going to find the stability and the teaching and the encouragement that God calls you to. Those of us like me who are empty nesters, we've got free time now. Some of you are retired. Where are your priorities? Are you gonna go off, in the words of John Piper, collect shells and play shuffleboard? Or are you going to pour into the single greatest investment and legacy that you can give? And, and the, the scriptures are very clear. As a younger man, I need to speak to those older than me with, like your fathers. And so I beg of you not to retire from the church. I beg of you, retirees, don't retire from the church. We need you. We need you to engage. So let's get even more practical because I've been talking, kind of pontificating, jump in. Well, how do I do that? Well, if nothing else, jump into a life group or a small church. You'll be amazed at what kind of growth opportunities, not only that God gives you through that, but that you help others grow. All right, you're already doing that. What do I do? Well, one of the biggest prayer requests our staff has regularly is volunteers. Volunteer. We say, I'm not comfortable doing those things. That's great. At the very least, find somebody else that you can mentor. Find somebody else that you can pour your life into. And then they can, in turn, pour their life into someone else. The greatest waste would be for us to be a part of this thing called the church and treat it like it's a second class organization. God calls us to worship and to engage. Let's do that. Amen. Father, thanks for this day. Um, you're a great God and worthy of our praise. Help us to do that with every fiber of our being. I pray this in Jesus' name.